0: The last decade has been the hottest on record.
1: We are facing an environmental crisis that is putting humans, animals and ecosystems at risk. We're two journalists from opposite sides of the world. Listen as we discuss current climate issues, bring to the front scene interesting people and offer you information on how to face the crisis the world is facing.
0: You're listening to Four Corners,
1: a podcast about environmental issues hello everybody welcome to the fourth episode of four corners my name is charlotte glorieux and i'm a french journalist based in montreal canada
0: and my name is fernanda gandara i am a half Guatemalan, half chilean journalist so last week we shared environmental information about our two respective countries canada and chile
1: and the two other members of four corners also joined us to talk a bit about their motivation for joining the project and also about how their countries were doing in terms of fighting the climate crisis.
0: Yeah, so it was Ali from Spain and Alex
1: from Australia, but go listen to the episode if you want to know what they said. (laughs) Yeah, and this week we are talking about climate change communication. And surprise, we have a guest!
0: Before we meet our special guest for the day, I have a little story for you.
1: Story time!
0: So this happened when I was about 14 or 15 years old. (laughs) So in my defense, I was pretty young. Um, And it happened with my youngest sister. So she was about four years old and she was learning how to take a shower on her own. And one day I, I found her. I don't know what she was doing, but I remember she was in the bathroom, but she was not inside the shower, but the water was running and I asked her what she was doing and she was like oh I'm waiting for it to heat." but you know it had been a while so I was like no you can't do that like you have to take care of the water and I tried to explain to her that the water was super important for humans and basically what I told her was that we needed water in order to survive and that without water we would all die Um, I got got a bit dramatic so um, I was super proud of myself after that I was like oh my god I'm such a great big sister like such a great role model and whatever but the problem (laughs) a couple of days later so um in my house when you turn on a water tap and then someone else turns on the water like the hot water in another bathroom or whatever like the amount of water that comes out from your uh tap becomes less i don't know if it makes sense but you know what i mean like the power is not the same um so she was she was taking a shower and she started screaming and crying and my mom rushed to the bathroom and she was like she thought she had fallen or something and she was like oh are you okay what happened blah blah blah. and then my mom like a couple minutes later she came to my room and she was super mad at me and she was like what did you tell your sister and i was like why <laughs> i didn't do anything um and she was like well she's crying because she thought the water was running out because someone else had turned on the hot water in another bathroom or something. So the amount of water she was getting was not the same she was like used to getting. So she thought that water was running out and that she was going to (laughs) die right in that second. Um, And I was like, what? But I did not say that. Like I tried to explain it, you know, (laughs) differently. But yeah, essentially she had understood that if water ran out, she was gonna die immediately and that's when I learned that it's very important to know your audience and know who you're talking to when you're explaining something so that you can like get on the same level as they are, especially if, <laughs> if it's kids uh, because they will take it very differently if you don't connect with them and their emotions and how they understand the world. And so yeah, I learned the hard way. <laughs> I had to sit down with my sister after that and explain everything and like, you know, calm her down and assure her that she was not going to die, but that it was important to take care of the water and, you know, all those things, but in a more uh, childlike way. So I understood the importance of knowing who you're speaking to and adapting your knowledge to the way the other person is going to receive it. So yeah, that's... Uh, my story of the day and I think it introduces our topic of the day really well because we're going to speak with a science communicator who's going to tell us all about how to communicate the climate crisis.
1: So this week, we have our first official guest, Mr. Asher Minns. Um He's a British science communicator who specializes in knowledge transfer of climate change research. And he's also the executive director of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. So very nice to meet you, Mr. Asher Mins, And thank you so much for being here with us.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, we're super excited to have you here.
0: But we actually talked last year because we did a project, me and Charlotte, actually, the two of us, we did a project on Extinction Rebellion. And I had the chance to talk with you then to discuss, I think it was more it had more to do with Extinction Rebellion and young activists and how they were shifting the narrative of the climate crisis. And
2: continue to do so.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty much yeah how we how we met and well, this, in this opportunity, we wanted to talk to you because now we're actually trying to communicate the climate crisis. So we thought it would be a good experience for us to learn more on how to do that from an expert. Um, so first we would like to start asking you what led you to your current work?
2: I used to work, well, I've had, I've had various careers and i was working in biodiversity research so ecological research and i became quite passionate about it and really i wanted to engage other people with the research that i was doing largely because i thought it was interesting so a very a very linear mode of communication but when i began to do that just just myself i found that the the appetite of the public for information about environmental science was quite vast and it it wasn't really being served. So we're actually going more than 20 years ago, so um, you'd have been particularly young at at this stage. (laughs) People are interested, the public are interested, and certainly at that time, 20-odd years ago, people weren't being served at all. It was um, a very, what's called a cognitive deficit mode of communication which almost assumes that the the public is is ignorant because they don't know scientific facts you know they they don't know um, enough about science or the environment or they can't just talk about the distance the earth is from the moon and therefore this the public was ignorant of science um, and i didn't like that really as a as a mode of of engagement very very elitist you know oh i've been to university i know all these things and 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 the um the, the public don't mm-hmm. so um that's what got me interested in a way in in in, in better communication and sort of dialogue around the environmental science some of it is still just telling the public what you're doing but that's really important as well because ultimately you're funded by the public mostly so you know they have a right to know what what what's been going on but much more than that it's because the public's interested they what they want to know and also we're in the age of the anthropocene and so you know if we're not trying to affect change or really engage people with what's happening to the environment then we're really not doing our our work so from my perspective you know science is not is nothing more than its communication in a way so Science, so science, and research—it certainly isn't finished until you've engaged people with what it is you found out and why, and what the importance of that that work is.
1: That's really interesting. Can I just ask for for our listeners? Can you like define what the Anthropocene is?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's lots of definitions. I won't I not bore, bore the the listeners with that. <laughs> but the Anthropocene is is really the the human made age that we're that we're in now. Mm-hmm. whereby there is nothing on the planet pretty much that isn't being affected by the footprint that the, the hand of of mankind so in the future there will be a geological record of mankind in many millions of years in the future a sort of you know, a, a layer there that will be deforestation waste all the stuff that we've discarded um so it'll actually be in the in the geological record so it's not just um, uh, it's not just sort of human interactions. It's actually modifying the planet and the way that the planet works.
1: I see, I see. And if we go back to what you do, what do you think is like a good science communicator? What What makes a good science communicator?
2: Um... Oh, that's a I've I've never been asked that question, before. <laughs> um, somebody who's not too close to the science.
1: Why is that?
2: So um so 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 you I think it's good to be a little bit non-specialist because if you get too specialist, you get too technical and you kind of get acculturated, you almost like turn into an academic and you can't help but have the jargon and the shortcuts and you're just you're just making assumptions. So hopefully somebody so it's actually somebody who's not too close to the science that, that well they, they understand the science but they haven't just been acculturated to be like a professor um you know they, they they can actually sort of tell the difference and still still tell a good story um so i think some somebody who's who's curious because you have to work it out in your head how it works before you can tell somebody else how, how it works um certainly enthusiastic um wanting to learn all the time not only about the researchers going but but even the medium you know here we are um i'm in the uk uh i'm not sure where you are in in chile but you're in chile and you're in you're in montreal and so even five years ago this conversation would not have been possible we'd have had some very crackly bad phone lines and things dropping out and so i think you actually need to be Quite curious about technology as well, and adopting that to to, to help with with engagement and, and communication. And then and then there's some just basic things which are just the other things probably just fall into basic good communication by being clear on who your target audience is, uh, what it is you're wanting to achieve, that that sort of thing. But I think the other things I've just spoken about, I think maybe more specific to, to science communication anyway, not if, if not climate change communication.
1: It's really interesting. And if I may ask, do you have any like examples of when it didn't work, where you didn't communicate well with the public? And like, what did you learn from that?
2: I, yeah. So I, so I was, um, so for a, uh, yeah, quite a lot of my career, obviously not right now, um, and our attitudes to travel have changed so um, I don't do as much traveling as I did anyway so I was actually really quite excited to be going to my local council to talk to them about climate change because it meant I just had to get on my bike and, cy- and cycle to the city hall you know there was no trains or any anything involved so yeah this is great I could do this be back in the office in a a couple of hours so I didn't do my homework and I ended up talking to a fairly and I didn't look to see the 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 political makeup so I was I just gave the wrong talk to the wrong group of sort of right-wing British independence politicians councillors so, yeah, I just assumed I'd been invited there because they wanted to know about climate change. They were interested in climate change, but they really weren't. And their, their political party was actually completely sort of contrarian and sceptical about climate change. So I absolutely could have handled that, but I just didn't do my homework. I just, just made, made an assumption. Um, well, didn't even make an assumption, just didn't do, do, do my homework. So I didn't do the right engagement. I gave a completely different type of engagement than i could of from people who i knew were skeptical the idea they would only be very they'd only be interested in how it affected them not not the community or people in other countries or anything like that that's not absolutely where they they weren't at you know i, I might have i could have perhaps talked to them about migrants you know, climate change might lead to more migrants, that probably would have got their interest versus me starting talking about the United Nations or something like that. Mm
0: -hmm. I just wanted to ask something, um, as you were saying before, how uh, there was a previous discussion on, is climate change real and we're past that, but there's still people that deny the evidence even now. And I wanted to ask, how does it feel like you being, uh, in the, like in the side of science and doing the research or seeing how your colleagues do the research, and still uh, engaging with people who say like, you know, the evidence is not real. Or how do you talk with those people?
2: It depends who they are, right? So there's some very there's some very influential people, who used to be presidents, <laughs> who who clearly have influence with what it is that they say. Whereas a lot of other people don't have influence they're just somebody who spends a lot of time on twitter for example but actually doesn't have any influence um so if they're influential people then probably there is is more needs to respond sometimes depending on who it is but that's often not best done in public but Overall, people working in and around climate change, whoever they are, whether they're activists or or scientists or or NGOs or or diplomats, is a little bit too obsessed with the idea of sceptics and naysayers, because that isn't most people. So if we imagine populations as as a bell curve, right, we've got the extremes here so most of the time don't bother with the extremes because everybody else is in the middle and so we focus on all the people in the middle not the people at the extremes it's the majority not the extreme minority but the extreme minorities seem more important because they're louder or they have more um strong opinions but they're not they're they're just sort of magnified a lot it's it's the it's the majority, which which is where we have to focus at. And that has proved successful.
0: Yeah. And I'd like to talk about examples of climate change communicators. Um, We, me and Charlotte were discussing the case of Greta Thunberg, because she's, you know, she's well known in which people are our age. Um, And we were wondering what you think she she has in her advantage? Is it her youth and the platforms she has with social media? And we were also wondering do we need a like a human figure to get behind and to identify ourselves with that person or is it enough if we just read from a newspaper or like what's the right approach
2: yeah stories are always are, are always about people or good stories are, are always about people um yeah, in all the history of storytelling when humankind first sat around, sat around campfires and and shared stories, that's how people learned you know, there was there wasn't books or manuals. They taught each other through stories about how, you know, how how to do things and their place in the world. So it's all about stories in some way, and to have sort of to have charismatic leaders works really well. And you know, as we can see, um, Greta and and there's other youth as well um, that uh, that have uh, sort of strong followings, and. There's always been quite a lot of discussion of all oh, you know, climate change needs celebrities that would make it more of a story. But the ce- celebrities are usually found to be not entirely authentic. Whereas uh, you know, Greta and people like her are probably a lot more authentic as well. So it's not you know, it's not only the age, and they're obviously so motivated and and inspired to do this, and it inspired many others. But they're also um, also a- authentic. They're not Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, and that's and that's actually a good thing.
1: <laughs> but about Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, I saw his documentary and I, I, I still thought it was very interesting and very compelling. But I do get your point that it's not the same as when you see like Greta crying in front of the world leaders and really showing like emotions and everything.
2: Yeah, absolutely absolutely. And I think yeah and, and and the so so Greta is only famous because of her school strikes on Fridays. She's not famous because she lives in a Hollywood mansion or and then adopted climate change. In, in some ways, I don't think they compare, but I think also you know, the DiCaprio film was only watched by the type of people who will watch a two-hour documentary on climate change. That's a tiny, tiny fraction of the population of the planet. Um, whereas uh, you know, Greta's woken, goodness knows, how many millions of youngsters all around the world to be thinking and acting and protesting in, in, in very um, influential ways about, about climate change. I mean, it's, it's a whole, whole, whole other level of, 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 uh, of existence.
0: And now that we're talking about the audience and understanding what the audience also is looking for, I wanted to ask you what you think is the hardest part about communicating the climate change research, or why is it hard to communicate it?
2: There's nothing hard about communicating climate change, right? So you know, I've been doing it for a lot. If I can do it, anybody can. There's there's nothing hard about it, but there isn't enough. There hasn't been enough focus on how, and quite a lot of that is going right back to the beginning of the talk, just thinking that all you had to do is push information about climate change and as a result, all of society changes. Um, There is a much greater understanding now that that's not really how it works. That's not how science in society works. It's a much more messy and and crazy and and difficult than that. Um, And that's where we've got so much to learn from or the other social sciences is is informing us a lot about yeah the, from a social science aspect, a societal aspect, than just it's about delivering information and you know t- traditionally a research project it would it would make a leaflet and that would be communication yeah you know, we communicated because we made a leaflet well did anybody read your leaflet did anybody understand your leaflet what, yeah so so we've got much more sophisticated approaches maybe projects still need leaflets, but yeah, the, the the doing of communication isn't the same as effective communication. So I'd say in the last few years, understanding how to engage and in some ways even why to engage has, has moved a long way as well. And so people who do training find it really, really useful. Um, it's not telling them what to do it's how it's how to approach it
1: so sharing information is important and engaging with the public is also really important
2: yeah and i think um a sphere of influence i think is really important as well because um because it is a big problem we can feel a bit um it's out of our control there's nothing we can do um it's it's too it's too big a problem and, and as a result feel rather negative about it feel rather removed from from the problem. And that's all true. But within the sphere of influence, we can have huge, huge impact and, and, and huge changes. So if we focus on the things we can do, rather than focusing on the things we can't do, <laughs> we're having a big, a big impact within that sphere.
0: Yeah, I think it Yeah, it has a lot to do with like changing the mindset, much more than you know, how these small actions will actually impact the planet, because it's not the same impact as it would be if, you know, the big industries would stop uh, polluting or whatever. I wanted to ask you, um, so climate change is a big, big problem, and we all know that, and sadly, small individual actions will not solve it. So how do we encourage people to still take those actions if most of them feel helpless in the issue.
2: It's exactly as, as, you, as you said, it's, it's a big, difficult problem, uh, messy problem. So, so we do what it is we can within our own sphere of influence. And that might be recycling or something. I mean, not to pick on recycling either. That yeah, All of these things are important, um, but that's not going to solve the global climate problem. Uh, uh, yeah a, a lot of the global climate problem is completely out of our hands it's to do with the big infrastructure that already exists around us you know if, if our if our power stations use large amounts of coal well what is it that the individual family is supposed to do about that you know stop using electricity so there are things that are within our sphere of influence and within our sphere of control so because we can't necessarily have that much individual impact on those big infrastructure things we do smaller but essential important things to respond in our own ways and that's absolutely fine you know children switching off light switches in the school because the classroom's empty that's still good because they're 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 thinking about it you know so that they're having a dialogue with what it is oh let's let's do this um even though that doesn't change the bigger picture so you know um transformation is is the the, the, is that big infrastructure stuff but it's also um the the actions that are in within our sphere of influence as well Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. i see i have a question so there is a recent
0: report made by the institute for economics and peace that says that more than 1 billion people could face being displaced because of climate change effects. And I've seen many environmental activists and movements share this number. But I was wondering, is is it safe to communicate these kinds of numbers? Because they're very alarming and we don't know for sure if that's the way it's going to be. So what would you say? Is it safe to communicate this?
2: So there's going to be quite a context to that 1 billion. And... It seems like a very big number. So I hadn't heard of that number. So the first thing I think is, you know, yourselves as stalked journalists would dig underneath that number. Mm -hmm. I can see that grabs a really good headline. But really, what's behind that and what assumptions did they make? So, you know, is it the case that they just took all of the world's global megacities, mapped sea level rise and just said, well, all these people are going to move? Because if they don't move, they're going to drown. Well, Is that really the case? Are all global megacities just going to be allowed to flood? Mm -hmm. Have global megacities not already got massive sea defenses? Are they not going to build further sea defenses to preserve those megacities because they're huge economic powerhouses? Do you you see so 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 first of all, I'd have to sort of just be a bit um, healthily scientifically skeptical about one billion people in 30 years' time? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, doesn't sound quite, quite right. So it might be right, but you have to look behind it and, and contextualise it. Um, also, 1 billion is just a huge number. So, you know, where in the world have they made some big assumptions about population growth? Now, quite clearly, there will be climate migrants and there will, will be climate refugees.
1: Yeah, but we have to be careful with numbers. hmm I see so there's a big challenge for journalists in communicating science.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I mean, yeah, there's now a whole industry of of, of climate and environmental journalists, you know, sort of sp- specialists who, who who focus on that, who and who might might dig into the stories. But I think, um, and it's and it's not to be skeptical or cynical, but I think. Um, Digging into the stories, a bit more scrutiny of, of science stories um, is actually quite a valuable journalistic story. And mostly there isn't enough scrutiny. So I think that's something that um, you know, young journalists could actually look to do. And you know, traditionally, journalists probably haven't got a scientific background. But that works really well, because that works to what I was saying about if you have somebody who's too much of a specialist, they're not a good communicator. Um, So you want somebody who isn't a specialist to actually, in some ways, apply some common sense and thinking to this. And so we've seen it all all around. I mean, the whole communication of science may have changed because of COVID, because there has been poring over statistics, races for vaccinations, scrutiny of the data, scrutiny of government contracts to supply things. So, um, you know, the whole... whole world has sort of woken up to science, to data, to graphs, to uncertainty, the knowns, the the known unknowns, all these sorts of things. So it may be that that will have changed how people sort of look at science stories anyway, perhaps.
0: Yeah, and I think also journalists need to be very careful not to fall into the trap of clickbait titles and look deeper into the numbers and the
1: information that they're sharing. That's true, because yeah, it's important to get people to read your piece or listen to your podcast, for example, but we have to be responsible with the information that we're sharing and share true information that is not exaggerated. Well, that's actually all the time we had. Thank you so much. That was really interesting.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. So thanks very much um, for uh, for inviting me. And to close, I would always say, which is what I always say to, to, to most people and most people I'm I'm engaging with, is we we know there's a climate silence, which is everybody's worried about climate. Majority of people are worried about climate change, thinking about climate change, support the idea of climate change, but they don't really talk about it. And, you know, most people aren't talking about it at dinner with their family or in the olden days when you used to be able to go to a bar and talk to friends. Um, And so one of the best things that anybody can do, whether communication or just concerned citizen, is talk about climate change so that there's... an end to the climate silence it's something that it's okay to talk about because we know people are worried about it any worry the best thing to do with a worry is to talk to other people about it and it becomes less of a worry so just talking about climate change is a good thing and talk about climate change with the the people you love and uh and that's a, a long way to being a, a good good communication about climate change and good engagement. And I absolutely wish you luck with your endeavour. And I will uh, I will watch with interest. Have good days. Bye now. Bye. bye.
1: I really like the idea he mentioned about not necessarily being a climate change expert in order to communicate um, science, because, for example, journalists kind of have an edge when it comes to reporting on climate change because we have a distance and we're able to use words that the you know the common person would understand um, and be able to relate to.
0: Yeah, that's true. I also like that, like the fact that you. Of course, you have to know about the subject, but you don't necessarily have to be a scientist. And yeah, you're closer to the public. And I also liked what he said about uh, communicating what people can do and not what they can't do. You know, like communicating this issue as a solvable problem. And that if we work together and people start taking small actions, it does contribute in some way. So...
1: That's true and um you know it's he he also mentioned how politicians and bigger companies hold the power to make changes but I do think that as citizens we have a power of you know making these people accountable for the the actions they're taking and um yeah we have a power as as people to pressure politicians to make um, good decisions about the climate crisis
0: yeah and also the power to choose them so (laughs) as we always say it's very important uh but well charlotte since we're already in the new year happy new year by the way (laughs) happy new year (laughs) um how is your vegetarian there going so far i'm i'm very curious to hear how how it has been and if you've tried many any great recipes that you want to recommend
1: Oh Yes, and yesterday I actually tried kind of a sort of risotto. I didn't use rice though It was I used barley and Barley from Canada actually so that's even better and uh, So it was with mushrooms and asparagus and Parmesan. It was delicious um, So it's going great so far. I have my little list of meals that I want to try uh, They all sound delicious and tonight I might actually make a sesame and honey marinated tofu skewer oh that sounds oh my god
0: i'm hungry now (laughs) that sounds really (laughs) good i can't wait you have to send us pictures and maybe we can post them on our instagram stories good idea good idea i will do that (laughs) thank you for listening this was charlotte and fernanda
1: we're two journalists from opposite sides of the world Discussing current climate issues. Tune in for the next episode of Four Corners, where we'll be talking about indigenous communities and climate change with our second guest. In the meantime, check out our Instagram at Four Corners
0: Project, where we'll be sharing information on the topics we discuss to make it easier and fun for you to get involved in the environmental discussion. New episode every Thursday.